0: I don't know, I don't know if you're like me or if you've had this experience, but at different stages of my life, I have tried to make places, like little safe places for myself. What I mean by that is like when I was a kid, there was a couple of times I can remember this distinctly where I would clear out my closet and I brought my, I had this little tiny kid's desk I brought it in there, had a little light that I like ran an extension cord in there for it. It was like this little secluded place that was just mine, and I of this because the rest of my room was a mess, and I just wanted this place that didn't feel chaotic. I hadn't worked out my Enneagram type yet to understand that like I need this kind of stuff, but it was like an organized little safe place that was, that was all mine. Only I could fit in there with like my clothes hanging right over my head, like it was my place. Or a couple years later, me and a friend, we made this fort across the street from our house where there was this, this field, they hadn't built a house on it yet, dug this huge pit out, had a piece of plywood on top that was our little roof, and uh, it, was our, it was our place. You know what I mean, it was safe, it was away from the parents, you know what I mean? Like it was, it was our little spot, our little refuge as it were. Or got into high school and uh, there was this dirt road that ran outside of our town We live on the edge of the Pine Barrens, one of the biggest, you know, kind of pine forests in uh, New Jersey, and on the way out through the Pine Barrens, there was this, there were old cranberry bogs that had been filled in and become lakes at this point, ponds, whatever you want to call them, and uh, we had this place, me and my friends, we ended up calling it the spot. It's like, that's where we would go. We'd get a carafe of coffee, because, I don't know, that's what we did, and We'd take our carafe of coffee. We had Walkmans at the time, if anybody remembers those. We were listening to The Doors, drinking some coffee. We filmed ourselves, made like a little home movie. It was weird, but it was our spot. That was where we went. No one else was there. That was our safe place. That was our spot away from the world, right? Our little secluded place. Still, even at this age, lately, I'm like, Maybe we should get a house in the Adirondacks. Maybe we can find a cheap fixer-up or a place that we can go, a place that's like mine, away from everything, it's secluded. It's my place, safe, quiet. But these were my, these were my hiding places, right? These, these, this, it's like maybe it's an escape. Maybe it's for mental or emotional safety of some sort. Emotionally, spiritually, I don't know. But I think that that we all have things like that still. Maybe it's physical places, I don't know. People we run to, hobbies we hide ourselves in, things that we go to that are ours, that place of refuge, that place of safety, that place of stability, that place where we can hide ourselves and just be. Today, we're going to look at a a famous psalm, Psalm 91, and and we're going to be looking at the idea that the Lord is my refuge. And in Hebrew, in the beginning, the first couple lines, it's, it's really this idea that the Lord is my hiding place, my secret place, that, that the place that I go and I dwell and I'm there and, and all, all is right with the world. The Lord is my refuge. Now, here's what we need to understand about Psalm 91. I want you to understand just a little bit of our theology as a church, right? Okay. We believe that the scriptures are true, that they are reliable, that they are able to teach salvation, make us wise unto salvation, that the scriptures all point to the gospel, that they, they point to Jesus, that they are the written word that points to the living word. We believe that the scriptures are authoritative, that they are the, the norming norm, that we run everything through, through scripture. It's, it's the grid that we run life through and say, you know, where is God at? What's God calling us to? What's the gospel? How do we know who God is? Where are we at in this story? We we go to scripture as a source of authority. But along with that, we also believe that the scriptures are written in a variety of styles of literature. There's various ways that the scriptures have been written over several thousand years. Some are historical narratives, you now the Gospels are narratives about Jesus' life. You have the Exodus story; it's a narrative, right? It's telling you a story that happened. There are chronologies. There's genealogies. What kind of literature is that? You know, where it's just listing who was born to who, to who, to who over the generations. There are there are letters written to people. Paul's letters, for instance, written to the churches. Well, it's a, it's a correspondence, right? Well, that's different than a narrative, which is different than a chronology, right? Different than a genealogy. There's instructions, very explicit dis- instructions about how to build the temple, how to build the tabernacle. Very clear numbers, dimensions, colors. Very clear set of instructions, unlike maybe what you get from IKEA. Uh, there's there's poems. There's poems within narratives. All of a sudden, a poem will just show up. Now you're in a different form of literature. There's, there's songs, there's prayers, and, and these in particular, these poems, these prayers, these songs use like grand dramatic language. But as I said in the beginning, still saying something true about God, still authoritative in our lives. But these, these poems, these songs are meant to paint a picture, they're meant to evoke a feeling, but they're not the same thing as a narrative, they're not the same thing as a historical uh, document. They're, uh, they're not the same thing as a letter with directions like an exhortation like Paul would write. Just a different form of literature. And so we have to read them through that lens. This is really important, I think. Because sometimes we come to the Psalms and we think, oh, well, this is just telling me what to do and how to live my life. There are times where it's wisdom literature like that, but there's times where it's just using this grand, beautiful language like a love letter, saying these grand things that are really just trying to paint a picture, right? So I was thinking about this just as an example, Benjamin Franklin, right? We all know Benjamin Franklin, history of the United States was an inventor and he wrote inventive type literature, telling people how he did things and what he was building. He was also involved uh, in the declaration of independence, a letter of sorts, but also a founding document of sorts. He also wrote poetry, believe it or not. He wrote diplomatic letters when he was working overseas, right, so different forms of literature, same author. Right? But when you read them, you have to figure out what am I reading here? What is the intent of this? What's going on here? And so I'm saying all of this to sort of set up what is a grand poem in Psalm 91. There's some grand things that are said, there's some huge language that is used that we need to sort of get into and say what's going on here. Remembering all the while that it's a form of literature, authoritative from God, true, saying something valuable. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Psalm 91. I want to read this for us, remembering that this is a poem that has a line scheme that that is using this language to paint a picture of who we are and who God is. So the author, unknown, if I slip into saying he, forgive me, could have been a woman that wrote it, I'm so used to saying he because of reading David and how many Psalms he wrote, so if I say he, please forgive me, we don't know. The author says this, the one who lives, or dwells, or sits down, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High, dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, the author's saying this now, he himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. You hear metaphor, right? Again, we wouldn't read that literally, right? This is is metaphor. It's poetic language. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness or his loyal love will be a protective shield. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon." Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked, because you have made the Lord, my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No harm will come to you, no plague will come near your tent, for he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will lift you up or they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent. Now back to, this is God speaking now. Because he has his heart set on me, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. So you can see this grand language, right? These metaphors, these word pictures, this huge language that the author is using to try to evoke faith in the people of God. Try to evoke a, a feeling of, of safety and security in who God is, ultimately, so that people of God can say, the Lord is my refuge. This is the point of the poem, not necessarily all literal, instructive language, though some people may choose to interpret it that way. So, here's the thing. We all need refuge, do we not? We all need shelter. Lately, we have rediscovered Bear Grylls on uh, the, Disney, the Disney Channel. He's doing these survivor shows where he's taking famous actors and musicians and things like this out into the wild with him and doing all these survival things. You know that it's totally dramatized. But anyway, it's great, right? And so there was one the other day where he's going out with somebody and they're in the freezing cold of like Canada somewhere or something, I forget. And, and he says, here's the things that you need to remember, Right, And if you've watched this, you know that he tries to get this guy to remember this thing. I want to make sure I get it right. Please remember what's first. This is Please remember what's first. If you find yourself in a situation where you're suddenly stranded in the woods, try to remember this. Most of us wouldn't make it. But anyway, try to remember this in the way that Bear grills would tell you. Please remember what's first. The first thing is protection. He's saying find shelter. Find a refuge that you can be in to make yourself safe from the elements, whether it's sun or rain or snow or cold or whatever it is. Find this protection. So please remember, rescue. Find a way to be rescued. Make the word help out of logs, whatever it is. Make a fire. Try to get yourself known. Please remember what's first, water, then food. Protection, rescue, water, food. Food. But the first thing of most importance when you get stranded somewhere, in the cold, in the desert, whatever it is, is to try to find protection, refuge, shelter of some sort from the elements. We are wired, innately wired, and I would say because of the way we are created, we are in need of shelter. We are in need of a refuge. We are in need of protection from these outside things. And I think, as Americans, we we tend to forget that. That, like, the majority world lives in this reality every day, trying to make sure that shelter is secured, trying to make sure that they're okay from the elements of all sorts, right? Whether it's monsoons or disease or whatever, it's trying to find protection of sorts. Like, we just don't even have to think about in the first world. Jess and I were listening to something recently where they said, you know, we were born on, on third base, and we think it's, we're there because we're hitting triples, like a lot of it's because of like just the good fortune that we've had to be born into like the wealthiest, most powerful country in the history of the world. Whether you're on the low end of that scale or the high end, we're in a really good spot due to good fortune. That's, now that's my theology. You can do with that what you want. But the majority world wakes up every day and has to deal with what is my shelter? What's my, like how am I gonna provide for myself? How am I going to be safe today? Where am I gonna get clean water from? Where is my refuge coming from? And so I think in some ways we're like, we like forget this, but that we are weak. We are in need, physically, but also emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And all of us, even in our good fortune and the ways that God has blessed us, and the ways we've worked hard and earned things for our lives, the things we've been born into, even in the midst of those, we are still a people that look for refuge that look for protection. Just think with me about this for a second. Physically, we all still live in houses. We all still want a house. We still want a dwelling place. We still have an aspiration of getting a better house, a bigger house, a nicer house, a warmer house a vacation house, whatever it is. Like, we know that we we need this, Then we get warranty plans on the things that we buy because we know that they're weak and they might break, so we better protect ourselves and have something to keep it working in case something happens to it down the road. We have insurance policies. Why? Because we're afraid that something's going to break our bodies, our cars, whatever it is. We're gonna get in an accident, right? Like, we know, we don't like to think about it, but we know that we are weak and frail and something bad might happen right? So we have these policies to try to protect us. Emotionally, we try to find security, right? We try to protect ourselves uh, through our relationships. We try to find the right people that are going to make us feel okay about ourselves. Uh, you know, we, we pursue it through, uh, you know, sexual relationships with people, trying to find security in, in that or, or through, uh, you know, gender issues or things like this where we're trying to find security. We want to know that we are okay as we are, and we look for it in all these places. We try to make these like vocational advancements where we try to get ahead and say like okay like now I'm good. Now that I've achieved this, now I'm safe. Now everything is okay. We have our own plans, our own schemes, our way that we try to be secure or or spiritually, right? Every I believe that every single human being is on a spiritual quest of some sort and we're putting our faith in something. At the end of the day, we're putting our faith in something, whether it's no God, God, I'm God, you're whatever. Like, we're putting our faith in something spiritually. We look for it in religion. We look for it in philosophy. All these places that we know that we are weak and we need something from the outside to protect us. We're going to find it. We're going to get it. We're going to secure it so that our lives are okay. And we know that we are needy. We know that we are, uh, uh, like, weak. And we know that bad things can happen, so we better protect ourselves in some way. We need to find significance, trying to protect our our love, our approval, trying to protect our, our plans and make sure that everything is safe and going to work out. And what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 91 is, the Lord is my refuge. Underneath all of it foundationally speaking, the Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my safe place. The Lord is where we should choose to dwell and find security and safety. Are those other things important? Yes. Did God give us a mind and wisdom to pursue protection for ourselves? Yes. Did he give us a way to get a job? Yes, absolutely. But foundationally, the psalmist wants to know that in the midst of pursuing all those things, is the Lord first and foremost your refuge? Is he the hiding place? For you? Is He the place that you're going to to dwell and find life and security and significance and approval? The psalmist is calling us to make sure that the Lord is our refuge. Like we did last week, uh, I want to invite somebody to come up and share about God being their refuge. Uh, Kevin is going to come up and share just sort of how Psalm 91 has impacted him. Uh, in the midst of this, just talking about refuge, I want to give us some like real-life examples other than just me pontificating on it. Uh, and so, come on up. Here you go. You're on it. Kevin's going to share about Psalm 91.
1: Thank you, Jim. Hey, everybody. Is this where I can make a short joke? All right. Um, as Jim said, I just want to share a personal testimony around Psalm 91. Um, and as I was reflecting on the words from this psalm, it really occurred to me that I've spent a good bit of my life trying to protect things and that are important to me and to control outcomes. When I was growing up, I played a lot of sports, so I worked out to protect myself from getting hurt. I tried to control what others thought of me sometimes by doing the cool thing, trying to fit in with the cool crowd. I also wanted to protect my future, so I went to college and I got a decent job. I spent a lot of time over the years focused on me and working hard to succeed. I was a very prideful person. When Tammy and I got married in 2001, suddenly there was lots more to protect. Wife, house, cars, retirement. So of course I bought life insurance, car insurance, contributed to my 401k, got disability insurance, and so on, just in case something bad had happened. Like most of us, I spend a lot of money and a lot of time trying to protect the people and the things that I love. And apparently this rubbed off on, uh, on one of my children who's not here, uh, who's the oldest, and his name is Andrew. I won't mention any names. Uh, I sent, he needed a calculator for school uh, one year, so I sent him to the store with my credit card, and of course, he got a really nice calculator. And he came back with the calculator, and he also came back with something else that was on the bill that was the warranty for the calculator, which cost almost as much as the calculator itself. Uh, so this was a, uh, a life lesson for Andrew that we had a little chat about. And um, it really also occurred to me that how wired we are as people to protect things. Um, anyway, I think, I think you guys kind of get the point. Most of my life was about me and being in control of everything, until 2008. So enter 2008, fast forward to 2008, and some of you guys, um, you know, my huddle, have have probably heard this story. Uh, But the wheels fell off in 2008, and like a lot of other folks, um, I lost my job, and suddenly, I felt like I couldn't protect anyone. And, you know, me being a prideful person, my ego was, was crushed. And I remember, and uh, Tammy, Tammy will vouch for this. She's, she's sitting back there, but I remember spending a few days in my PJs, not even leaving the house, searching on monster.com, trying to, trying to find a new job. If, if some of you guys know what monster.com is, but some of you kids probably never heard of monster.com. Um, I felt like I'd failed at a husband, as a husband and a father. We owned two houses and uh, if you guys remember 2008, um, you couldn't sell a house in 2008. So we just moved here to Nazareth, and um, yeah, two houses, and we had three kids under five, so the, uh, the stress level um, was really, really high in our house at that point, point, uh, and no income, mind you. So I felt like my life was totally out of control, veered totally off course, and as I reflect on this now, I realize this was a flashing sign from God, kind of a wake-up call, um, trying to get my attention. And he was really trying to help me understand that uh, my plans weren't necessarily his, his plans, uh, that my life should be about his story, not my story. And it really reminds me of Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And I really wish somebody would have shared this first to me years ago, uh, because my hope was definitely in myself and, and not in God. So what the heck does all this have to do with, with Psalm 91? Um, as I've grown in my relationship with Jesus, Psalm 91 really reminds me that I need to trust more in God's plan for me and less on my own understanding. It reminds me that when times get tough, and, and they will get tough, Maybe it's God's way of of trying to get my attention and that I should take time to pray about the situation. John 16, 33 says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Those are reassuring words that gives me hope. God doesn't say that this life will be easy and that we won't have trials. That's pretty evident with everything going on in the world, COVID, wars, uh, politics, random shootings, et cetera, fill in the blank. But we never need to face them alone. We will, he will be there with us in our trials. For me, Psalm 91 gives me peace knowing that no matter what my circumstances might be, it is my salvation that is protected as long as we dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. And nothing on this earth can take that away. Amen.
0: Later we'll have a lesson about Monster.com, Napster, E-Trade, e- MySpace, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Kevin. What? E-Trade's still there, okay, <laughs> sorry. Enron, sorry, that was, <laughs> sorry, I don't I mean to make light of that. You know, Kevin shares-, shares something really true in there towards the end about how there are troubles In the world, there are trials. So let's talk for a second about what Psalm 91 doesn't mean. A couple things, all right? Psalm 91 does not mean that if you have comfort, it equals God's protection. This is important because I think that's a trap we fall into. Well, I'm comfortable, life is good, I must be doing everything great. Clearly, I'm following God because my life is blessed, right? And we wouldn't say it, maybe we wouldn't say that out loud, maybe we would, but we think it. Does everyone who lives a comfortable life live in the shadow of the Almighty? Are there not evil people that prosper? That have great lives from the outside looking in, right? Life is good. Houses, boats, cars, relationships, whatever. Life's great. Money in the bank. Horrible people. Does everyone who doesn't live a comfortable life not have God's protection? What's that say about people born into sub Saharan East Africa, West Africa? Oh, because their life isn't good? Do they not know God? Do they not follow God? That was a, that was a mindset for a long time in the church. It's evil. Clearly, they're, they're pagans. That's why God hasn't blessed them. Man, it's warped theology. Psalm 91 does not mean that the refuge of God equals no pain. How could it? The author's not naive. This author was a a good Jewish person who understood the history of Israel and where they'd come from, the trials they'd been through, a people enslaved for 400 years. Like, this is a formative story for the people of Israel, the people of God living in slavery. Refuge in God doesn't mean no pain. As Kevin talked about from John 16, that Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have troubles. There's a promise for you. In this world, you're going to have problems. In this world, you will have troubles, trials, tribulation, suffering. Jesus himself experiences it, right? Psalm 91 does not mean that perfect obedience, if you would just obey perfectly, which we can't, by the way, but if you could just obey perfectly, then you wouldn't have trouble or pain, often a trap we fall into. Something goes wrong in our lives and we think, where am I off? What, what sin is God punishing me for? Now, does God use trouble to bring us to himself? 100%. 100%. But often we make this idea that well well if I would like we end up believing in like this weird version of Christian karma. If I would just do good and I would just be good 100% of the time, then then I would have God's blessing. Then these troubles would go away. Then these trials would cease. Friends, Jesus himself The incarnate God on earth obeys perfectly, lives out the law of loving God and loving others perfectly, a sinless human experience, and yet goes through the most pain. Does he not? Homelessness, hunger, abandonment, betrayal, and death. Perfectly obedient. Psalm 91 doesn't mean if you just obey perfectly, then you'll get everything good. It can't. The author does not intend that. And what happens is these views, when we start to adopt them, it it cheapens what the psalmist and the scriptures teach. It cheapens our relationship with God into being some form of transaction with like a cosmic Santa Claus, right? Right? We just, we're we just going to do all the right things. We're going to stay on the nice list, and then everything's going to go well. And if it doesn't, why am I on the naughty list? What happened? I can't trust this Santa Claus God. And I do think this is one of the reasons. Did you catch it in here that this, is, this, this passage shows up in the New Testament? When Jesus is being tempted by the enemy, when the devil comes to him, he uses this exact psalm. Let the record show the enemy of our souls knows Scripture, and he can twist it. Satan shows up and he tempts Jesus and he says, just throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. God will protect you, right? Get that Santa Claus genie God of yours to protect you. You're the son, right? Try to make this transaction with Jesus. Psalm says it, Jesus, throw yourself down off the temple and all the people, man, they're just going to be blown away. And God will, his angels will come and lift you up. You won't push, you know, crush your heel against a, a stone. You'll be okay, He's trying to cheapen the relationship with God into something about just comfort, safety, working miracles on my behalf because I've been a good boy. It's not what the psalmist is saying. It's not what the scriptures teach. A relationship with God is not meant to be transactional like that. It's not meant to be a karma type thing like that. It's not meant to be a wish list if I just stay on the nice side of God. We have a tendency to do this, friends, and it's really important that we recognize it, that we call it out when we see it in one another, not in a mean way, but when we see a friend doubting God's goodness because they're going through trouble, and we got to call that out and say, no, 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 the gospel says you're loved. Maybe God's calling you to something, but let's have faith. Let's go to God as our refuge, not just try to do good karma and get on the good list. Something else going on there. Let's not think so highly of our own comfort that we've been born into, our own performance, thinking that, like, I've done everything right, therefore my life's good. Or when pain comes along to start believing that, well, maybe God's not good. If God would do this, if God's not protecting me, I've, I've kept up my end of the bargain, where's God? We need to be careful to not live into that environment. Or when we see someone else and their life being troubled, we don't show up like Job's friends who are like, oh, you scoundrel, you must not be worshiping God enough. You must not be being godly enough. Therefore, God's punishing you. Again, we can have faith for one another and call one another to God as refuge. We don't need to cast doubt on their faith because something troubling is happening in their life. So what does Psalm 91 mean then? In this grand language, when the psalmist says, the Lord is my refuge, the Lord is my hiding place, what does this mean? Well, I think we have to start with walking with God intentionally. Look at verse 1. The psalmist says this, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. The one who lives, this isn't coincidental, this isn't by accident. This isn't like they're already there. Therefore, they're in the shadow of the Almighty. What the psalmist, the, the word there is like sits down in. The one who intentionally plants in the Almighty. The one who intentionally goes and lives under the protection of God Almighty. It says, I will be here by faith. I'm, I'm planting a flag right here. You're my God. You're my refuge. I'm intentionally going to be in your presence I'm going to believe foundationally that all protection is found in you. I'm going to live there. I'm going to live in that reality. It's an intentionality on the part of the believer. Or at the end of this psalm, look what God's response is. In verse 14, because he has his heart set on me. Where's your heart, friends? What is it set on? Is it set on God? Is it set on the Almighty? Our Father in heaven, because his heart is set on me, I will deliver him. It's an intentionality of of faith, of life, saying, like, man, I'm I'm going to dwell in the midst of God. Not to earn it, but because he's offered it to us and it's already there in his presence. I'm going to go live there. And when you live there, you start to experience God as refuge. When you walk with God intentionally... You start to experience his friendship, his love, his care. Look at these verses with me. Verse 4. You start to experience this this tenderly motherly care of God. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. Think of the tenderness of that. Of Of a mother bird collecting The chicks underneath her wings to protect them, to love them, to shade them. This is the tenderness of our Father. He says, when you live intentionally into this, look what you experience, this this covering of God. You experience his faithfulness. Verse 4, his faithfulness will be a protective shield. God's faithfulness. (laughs) We're broken, unfaithful, mess it up all the time. When you intentionally keep coming back to God, living in his presence, you know find, you find his faithfulness. His faithfulness becomes your protection. And man, when you go out in the world and you're facing troubles and trials, you're like, I know I'm gonna mess it up, but he's the faithful one anyway. You get to live in that and you know that you're shielded by God's faithful, loyal love. We're at the end of this Psalm 91 again. Verse 15. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. Your woman, you need to put yourself in there. When, when she calls out to me, I will answer her. When when we walk with God, when we live in God's presence, we get to hear his voice, sense his nearness. When you pray, when you prayed earlier, when you're just resting and being quiet, did God say something to you? Do you know that we get to do that? To be still? Hear God speak? It might not be that booming voice, it might be just a still whisper. It says, Hey, you're holding the line too tight on this thing. Let it go. That's the Lord speaking. God calls us, he speaks to us, and when we call out to him and and live in his presence intentionally, he answers us. We can sense his nearness. So close that we are dwelling in his shadow. Lastly, as Kevin talked about, we experience his salvation. I will satisfy them with a long life Show him my salvation. When we are dwelling in the house of God, when we are dwelling in his presence, intentionally living in in the reality of a father in heaven who loves us, we start to experience his salvation, his deliverance. Most notably in Jesus. In short, the refuge of God is not the absence of trouble, the absence of trials, the absence of pain, it's it's actually the presence of God in our lives. It's friendship with God. It's knowing him. It's being close to him. It's hearing his voice, experiencing his care. It doesn't mean the absence of trouble, abiding so close that that we're experiencing the covering of his wings and feeling his presence in our lives. It's not about a transaction, friends. It's about trust. It's about every day saying in a new way, man, I'm putting a flag in the ground today. I'm dwelling in God's presence. I want to live in his house. I want to be with him and experiencing that in its reality, in its fullness of him being near to us. In Psalm 46, like I talked about earlier, the psalmist says in there, though the earth give way, Friends, if that happens, it's not good. Though the earth quakes, though the mountains are thrown in the heart of the sea, what? God is still with me, the psalmist says. Though all of this chaos happens around me, God is still my refuge. God is still with me, and I am still with God. Jeremiah 29 that Kevin just quoted. Do you know where those people are when God tells them, I've, I've got a plan for you, I've got a hope for you. Do you know where they're living? In exile, And God said, the exile is going to go on for so long, I'm calling you to put down roots there, build cities, get married, plant gardens. That stinks, friends. But in the midst of that, God says, I got a plan for you. I have hope for you, Israel. There's a deliverer coming. Friends, God's refuge is not an absence of trouble. It's the promise of his presence with us when we abide in him. It's an already not yet reality. Salvation, sometimes we experience it in this earth where we are saved from things, where God dramatically does some kind of thing, where the people of God rally around somebody and help them. And other times, the ultimate redemption, the fixing, the bringing of justice, we don't see it. We don't see it until the end. We don't see it until Jesus returns and, and brings his kingdom fully to earth and the kingdom's handed back over to the Father and we see things reconciled. But what's in that is our salvation, our deliverance, that through Jesus we experience some of it now, we get a foretaste of it now, and someday in all its fullness, we will be delivered, we will be saved, finally set free from sin and death and brokenness. In this grand language, the poet says, no plague will come near your tent. And it reminds me of the plagues against Israel. And Israel is kept secure. But they have to believe, right? They have to paint the blood over their doorframe. We see the last plague is the slaying of the firstborn sons. And all these sons die in Egypt because they don't want to live in Yahweh's presence. They don't want to paint that blood of the sacrificed lamb over their doorway. And it reminds me that in the gospel, that the plague doesn't come near us. The plague of death does not come near us. We will experience salvation because the plague falls on who? Jesus. Ultimately, our salvation rests in him. Our refuge is in him. Our refuge is in the good news of the gospel that I won't get it all right, but he did. And he took the punishment for my sin and I could be made right and have new life in him now and in fullness someday when I'm rescued from this mortal, sin-filled body. And the more you walk with God, the more you experience this and walk in his shadow and sense his presence and hear his voice, you get to join Jesus in saying, not my will, but yours be done, like Kevin talked about. Not about my story. My story's wrapped up in yours. Not my will, but yours be done. And there's a refuge in that. Friends, we are all putting our hope in something, in someone, something. What are you running to for refuge? Refuge. Where are you looking for safety in your life? Security? We all hide. Hide ourselves in these little things, these places, jobs, relationships, addictions. Looking for life. Looking for security in a weakened world. What are you trusting? Who are you trusting to give this to you? Yourself? Others? Are you valuing the presence of God in your life as secured by Jesus? Or if you, you have a tendency to cheapen the relationship with God, to be some kind of transaction. I'm just gonna do it right, then God's gonna bless me and all's gonna be well. Is it a relationship? Is it trust? Or is it some kind of cheap transaction? Like I said, we are all trusting in something. Question it. (laughs) Question it every day. What am I trusting in right now? Where am I finding refuge? And I encourage you with this psalmist, with the people of God down through the ages, down through the centuries, to say the Lord is my refuge, my refuge. Today, Tomorrow I'll do it again, next day, the next day, until I'm taken into glory, into the fullness of God's presence someday. I will hide under his wings, walking so close to him that I'm walking in his shadow, experiencing his presence in my life. Would you pray with me?